McDonald up. Hits one deep to left field. That's heading for the wall. That's up, up, and there she goes. Well, how about that? That's a home run for his dad who just passed away. And they're on their feet here as they should be at the Rogers Center. 2-1 offering. Swing fly ball deep left center field. Way back for it. Michael Saunders out the track. The fence. And there she goes. Number 50 for Jose Bautista. I was not at that John McDonald Father's Day game. I was not there. But I was at the Jose Bautista 50 home run game. I know everybody says they were at the Joe Carter home run game. No, you were not. Those tickets were expensive then in 1993. That was like like $40. You know how hard it was to get $40 scrounged together in 1993 with no paid sick days? I think I took a paid sick day in uh, 2010 to go to that Bautista 50 home run game. I do. That is the inimitable sounds of Jerry Howarth. He did a lot more than call home runs. In fact, he had to call a lot of games when the Jays were on a long postseason drought. But in the last three years of his Blue Jays career, they made the playoffs twice and went to the American League Championship Series. And we're going to talk about some of those memories. We don't hear from him often enough, um, but I reached out and Jerry Howard says, Greg, I'll do one interview. I'll do only one, not five, not six, not seven. He's not LeBron James joining the Miami Heat. And I'll do it with you on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. So I want to welcome in, because we got, listen, we got a long road ahead till 3 o'clock. We got a lot of hard stuff, difficult stuff, you know, borderline tragic stuff to talk about. We do. So let's keep it light for the show open. That's not like me. That's the, Is that Brady keeping it light? No, usually not. But Jerry Howarth, 36 years behind the microphone of Blue Jays baseball, uh, best-selling author, and again, the voice of April baseball, and oftentimes October baseball as well. Partnered with the legendary Tom Cheek for so long, so let's bring him in. Here's Jerry Howarth. Jerry, thank you so much for making the time. It's opening day. Our listeners love hearing from you. Our listeners deserve to hear from you. Thank you for coming on with me. Well, you are welcome, Greg. And actually, if I were on the air today on this April 1st, I would say, no fooling, it's opening day. <laughs> well, we need that. We need that levity. We need that uh, that lightness uh, in our step. It is, um, I, I'd love to know, I'd love to know what your first opening day felt like. And, and uh, according to the numbers, you stepped in on opening day 1981, and, and you also stepped in to a season that was also a bizarre season with a labor stoppage, two different seasons. We had expanded playoffs. We thought that was really strange at the time. Tell me what opening day 1981 was like for you. Well, it was special. There's no question about it. It was my first major league opening day, and my heart was pounding, and that's only natural, and the adrenaline was flowing. I was very fortunate. Uh, Tom Cheek handed me a recorder that day, and he said, Jerry, welcome to opening day. Go get, a re- go get an interview. And I ended up interviewing Roy Lee Howell, who I knew in the AAA Pacific Coast League. I had broadcast a couple years in Tacoma, and Roy Lee was in Spokane. But that really relaxed me a lot. And really, Greg, that led to Tom and Jerry for the better part of my career. And Enjoyed it so much, but the thing about opening day was how special it was for the fans, the players, their families, and the outcome of the game really didn't matter too much because you were so caught up in the excitement and the joy, my favorite word, of opening day. Well, I'd say that that there were so many great opening days. I'm always a big believer, uh, Jerry, that I I like the daytime games better. I know later on 
when the Jays were playing at Rogers Center. The games often were at night. It was often opening night with a 7 o'clock start. But there was no, there's nothing like a 105 start at home. There's nothing like that. And, and you remember how the videos were a few years prior to you coming with the snowstorm in 1977 and the White Sox in those uniforms. We see that footage every single Blue Jays opening day. And uh, there was something special about opening day at the X, not knowing what the weather would be like. Well, you're so right. And actually, you touched upon something there that gave me great pleasure, too, in my career. And those were all the day games on Saturday and Sunday. And people would tell me, Jerry, I was up in the cottage where we were driving home, and we heard your broadcast, and we enjoyed the stories you told, and the flow of the game, the pace of it. We could see it. We felt like we were right there in the ballpark. And I always felt, too, Greg, that day games were, for me, my favorite games. And I thought the fans, too, enjoyed those the most. The other games were terrific. But day games were special. Opening days were special. And when you think about opening days, for me, the two best and most enjoyable opening days were 1993 1994 because those mm-hmm. were the opening days that the Blue Jays received their World Series rings. Yeah, just just remarkable, uh, remarkable moments. And, and, you know, even 16 and 17 to some extent, I want to get there with you because that's so fresh in our minds. And, the you know, uh, obviously during the pandemic, uh, we started seeing a lot of those moments rebroadcast. Your calls were rebroadcast. The television calls uh, of some of those famous moments were rebroadcast. What a gift for fans, and what a gift for you late in your career to have that real renaissance. I, I, I want to ask you about that. Midway through 2015, the organization's kind of languishing. They're, they haven't been to the playoffs in forever, as you well know, and there's pressure. There's pressure on John Gibbons. There's pressure on Alex Anthopoulos. And within the span of a week, Jerry, they revolutionize the ball club. They trade for Troy Tulowitzki, and a few days later, they trade for David Price, who was with the Detroit Tigers then. Tell me what that said to you, and then August of 2015 was this, they couldn't lose. They, they absolutely obliterated the rest of the field, running away with the division. Well, a couple of thoughts come to mind. Number one, that 2015 season at the trade deadline was all one of the best young general managers in the game, Alex Anthopoulos. I knew that from the beginning, and he and I shared a friendship that we still enjoy today. And Alex just grew into the job. And the real shame of it all was that by May of that season, Rogers, Edward Rogers, had already decided to bring in Mark Shapiro, and he had hired him, unbeknownst to everybody else. So mm-hmm. Alex, he did his thing and did bring in Troy Tulowitzki, as you mentioned, David Price, and it was phenomenal. And really, a second thought that comes to mind was the fact that in David Price's first start, the place was electric, and the crowd, now more 35 to 40 45, 50 years old, they were the loudest and most enthusiastic crowds I had ever seen. And remember, I had gone through 92 and 93 in the World Series years. But those crowds in 92 and 3, they would start cheering in the ninth inning and a lot of times with two outs and two strikes on a hitter. But mm. in 2015, the second half and all of 2016, the cheers began when a pitcher would go out to warm up 20 minutes before game time. I had never seen that joy, that enthusiasm pandemonium, bedlam, whatever you want to call it. And that was so special, too. So when I look at 2015, that was a remarkable turnaround. The only sad part was Alex, at the end of the season, was pretty much let go. He was offered a five-year, $10 million contract to work under Mark Shapiro. But for me, he made the right choice because he was making the decisions at that time and didn't want to be under somebody else making new decisions. What has Alex done since he left Toronto? With the Dodgers in Atlanta, he's won five division titles. 
For me, he's a Hall of Famer. He'll be in Cooperstown someday, right there with Pat Gillick, the two best general managers the Blue Jays have ever had. I'll tell you what, Jerry, you're, you're bringing back some thoughts, too, because I remember being on the air the morning that Alex announced John Gibbons as new manager when John Farrell wanted to go, and it was his choice to go to the Boston Red Sox. Everybody has to do what's best for them, look out for number one sometimes. But when he announced John Gibbons coming back, you remember it. I'm on air the next morning. People didn't get it. They said, that's not the right guy. No one else gave him a job. No, like That's the wrong choice for an up-and-coming young ball club that's got potential. Boy, boy, did Alex nail it. It took time, but Alex got the right guy with the right mentality to manage Jose Bautista and Josh Donaldson and all these other veteran players. Wasn't he the right guy? He was perfect. And when I talk about the two best general managers in Blue Jays history, for me anyway, Pat Gillick and Alex Anthopoulos, the two best managers on the field were Cito Gaston and John Gibbons. And for a hit or two here and there, John Gibbons might have won two World Series in 15 and 16, just like Cito did in 92 and 93. Why is that? Because both had the ability to both relax under pressure, delegate, and let their players be themselves without looking over their shoulders to see, am I going to be pinch hit for? Am I on the mound looking in the bullpen to see if in this jam is uh, Cito or is Gibby still going to be with me? Yes, they were always with those players. And later the players would just say, best manager ever, Cito Gasson when they played for him. Best manager ever, John Gibbons. Because they were so relaxed in a tough game to play under pressure, but they got the most out of their abilities because those two – and in particular, John, in 15 and 16, uh, could have done exactly what Cito did, going to two World Series, and whatever happens after that when you get there. and It didn't happen, but they're the two best managers because of that. And uh, John was able to delegate. He would tell the players, you go out there and play to the best of your ability. And he would listen to everyone and just sit back there and enjoy the game. But at the same time, he was in on every decision because he was making them, but delegating at the same time. The great Jerry Howarth, our guest, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. I bet you a lot of listeners, for what you just said, they don't have to have played Major League Baseball. That goes for any office building, any walk of life. You and I are both broadcasters. When you've got somebody that's supportive, like you want to get you want to get your mistakes pointed out, you want to get coached, you want to get called on the carpet sometimes, but you want some understanding. You can't, you, you know, you got a lot of freelancing to do in 162 broadcasts a year so not everything's going to be flawless but but what you love is having having the backing and the support to say i got what you were trying to do there and i support you going forward that's all anyone asks for in in broadcasting or in life that is so true Uh, when you can stay positive like that and maintain that that's where everybody in a clubhouse in a, a classroom it doesn't matter they're relaxed and really for anybody yourself on on air myself when i was broadcasting it doesn't matter what walk of life you're in The best ones are the ones who are the most relaxed, getting the most out of their abilities. You can't work under pressure. You can't look over your shoulder. And those in uh, key leadership positions, the ones who can get people to relax and get the most out of their abilities, they're the ones who shine. And the Blue Jays were very fortunate that they had two managers and ended up with two World Series and could have had four with a break here or there. But that's what the game is all about. 
And uh, John Gibbons and Cito had that disposition uh, to just let people play. Let Just go ahead and play. And you don't see that a lot. There was no pressure at all. And uh, you're exactly right. I, I enjoyed my years, and in particular, those years under Cito and John. I know you've enjoyed your retirement. I know you pack a lot into uh, a day, a week, a month. Uh, you're busy, a grandfather now. I want to ask you what last year was like watching games because, yeah, you've probably called some games in, in you know empty stadiums here and there. I remember how empty, say, Municipal Stadium used to be or, or sometimes those third, fourth home games in cold weather cities in April. But calling games in completely empty stadiums, when you'd watch a Blue Jays game uh, taking place in Buffalo, Jerry, or you'd watch an empty stadium elsewhere, um, that tears at the heart a little bit. I think we all had a tough time adjusting. I, I'm not sure I ever got really used to it. No, it was difficult. And um, one of the successors for me who I helped bring to Toronto, Ben Wagner, I would say to Ben, too, in an email or a telephone call, good job, Ben. He called those 60 games. They were not easy at all. And I said, good job, because with nobody in the stands, you still have to maintain your enthusiasm. You have to call a good game. You have to kind of work around and make sure that everybody's involved in what they're doing. And Ben did that. But that was very difficult to call only 60 games, and the season was over. What that did, though, is it allowed the young players to kind of come forth, make it to the playoffs, which was terrific. And that's a good omen, too, here for 2021. Uh, the only asterisk I would put here this year is the pitching. And the starting pitching, which was so dominant in 93, 4, and then later 15 and 16, if they can have those starting pitchers do well, well, with their young offense and talented players, they've got a chance to, again, maybe get back to the playoffs, but it will not be easy. Jerry Howarth joining us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto on opening day. I, want, I got one more opening day I'm dying to ask you about, uh, and it's your recollections with you and Tom. Uh, off the 87 uh, disaster, you and I have uh, joked about that. Uh, poked As a lifelong Tigers fan, you've poked me in the ribs a little bit about 87. I know, I know how hard that was that, that last week. I get it. But opening day comes, and Jimmy Williams says to George Bell, guess what? You're the MVP. You're the reigning AL MVP, and you're going to be DHing a lot. You're not going to be out there in left field anymore. So what does George do after some spring training uh, issues here and there? I remember, what, he took a nap in the bullpen or whatever. Opening day comes Jerry in Kansas City and he swats three home runs against Brett Saberhagen no less in Kansas City Missouri that in 1988 that must have that's a massive statement by the rating MVP isn't it it is and it wasn't over then because (laughs) there was a lot of tension that Jimmy Williams brought to the clubhouse Jimmy was a very intense person opposite John Gibbons and Cito Gaston who had everybody relax in a clubhouse but with Jimmy it was just a different way of looking at the game and the tension. And, and then, so George hits three home runs, and um, afterwards he says, I, I should be playing left field. Well, there was a, uh, an off day after that first game. Then in the second game, George is out in left field, and he goes five for five. And then he says later, see, I should be in the lineup in left field. And it brought the house down. But uh, it also brought to the attention, too, of uh, the organization that, there was some tension there with Jimmy. It was too bad. And uh, that was kind of the beginning of that tension with his own players like George Bell. I want to ask you about um, baseball and where it's going because we're talking about some amazing memories um, that you've been such you've been such a fabric uh, passing even from generations and families listening to your broadcast. 
But when I when I look at some of the stats, um, I get concerned about baseball. The average age of a baseball viewer is now 57. That's up from 52 several years ago. Um, I do worry. Some, sometimes I'll watch games, Jerry, and I'll say, you know what? I want to see the ball in play more. There's too many home runs. There's too many strikeouts. Uh, and there's too many pitching changes. I, I, I get a younger generation wanting a faster pace of play. Now, baseball's trying. Tell our audience what you like what you don't like about about the sport itself. It's always trying to tweak uh, to modernize. W- w- what are they doing right? What would you fix? Well, what you, what you just said there describes perfectly uh, the seasons from 94 on after the Blue Jays had won two World Series and the first half of 2015. Perfect description. And then what happens? We talked earlier here about Alex Anthopoulos turning things around, bringing in marquee players, and the Blue Jays start to win. Well, those crowds then suddenly were 30, 40, 45 years old, maybe 50. And all of a sudden, with the older crowd, which had been baseball-oriented for years and still is, all of a sudden, 50,000 a game, roaring like I'd never heard before for a season and a half. What's my reply to you? Win. When you win and put people in the stands, all of a sudden, that changes everything. And the Blue Jays have really not done that since the 2016 season ended, and they went into 2017, and it's been a struggle since. But winning takes care of so much. And so I've always said the crowds are there now, and you don't have to worry about the stadium either. The Rogers Center is there, and all that came to fruition there in the last half of 15 and all of 16, like I'd never seen before. So that's really kind of your answer. Where does that start and end? It starts with the general manager with Mm -hmm. support from the owners to then bring in the players for the manager then to just manage. But it all gets down to the general managers. I always said, Greg, many times on the air, the real competition is not down on the field. It's among the general managers. And that's why Pat Gillick and John Gibbons shine so much in Blue Jays history because of bringing the players in to do what we just talked about, and that was win ball games and get to the playoffs and in Cito's uh, case, two World Series and almost mm-hmm. two for John. I want to bring up something as well for our listeners, and I some will know the story and some won't. Um, but but I think you broke some ground here, and and I'm pretty proud to say uh, that that you know we were colleagues. Uh, I consider you a friend and such a mentor as well for me. You, in 2016, prior to the ALCS, said, I'm not going to use the Cleveland Major League Baseball team's nickname. I consider it offensive to Native Americans. I consider it offensive to Aboriginal Canadians. A few years prior, I I decided in my own mind I'd stop using the Washington NFL team's nickname. Now we've seen that nickname scrubbed in the NFL, and we've seen Cleveland do an about-face and say, you know what, we're on the wrong side of history here, we got to fix this. But as you know, four and a half years ago, it was still pretty common, pretty in vogue. Like we just, we threw that I word, if you will, out um, like, it was, like it was nothing. And we do use that R word as well years prior and did give it a second thought. That, 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 was, a real, that was a real moment for you. you. You definitely knew you wanted to make a statement, and you knew you'd be on the right side of history with it. Well, that, uh, first of all, I thank you for that. But uh, second of all, that all began after the 1992 season when the Blue Jays beat Atlanta. And I was home in the offseason. I received a very nice fan letter from uh, a gentleman up in the uh, First Nations area, uh, north here of Toronto, of course. And he said, Jerry, I've been um, part of a First Nations family for years and years. And where we live up here in our area, uh, we heard the broadcast and we heard you and everybody else talking about the tomahawk chop and uh, 
the uh, in Cleveland, the mascot there, Chief Wahoo, and he went on and on in the letter in a very nice way. And he said, Jerry, we love your broadcast, but what we want you to do is just think about when you, uh, the Blue Jays are playing Atlanta or Cleveland, think about what you're saying and how offensive it is to us who grew up in, a, in mm-hmm. an area where that's sensitive to us. That's, we don't want to hear that, but so many people don't really care. And just think about that, if you will. Well, Greg, what I did is I wrote him back. I can't remember his name. I thought it was Jim uh, when I think back on it, but I never kept his name or address. But I wrote him back and I said, uh, Jim, I'm going to use that name. He said, I I said, I really appreciate what you just said in this letter here about what you feel is very offensive to not only you, but the people that you live and grow up with. My commitment to you because of this letter from now on, and it was a off-season of 1992. From now on, in the rest of my career, how long that is, I will never use the nicknames of Atlanta, Cleveland, Mm -hmm. and of course I mentioned Washington too and how offensive that was. Well, I never did. And uh, so finally, to start the 2016 season, uh, and it might have been the 2015 season, but I think it was 2016 because the Blue Jays were playing Cleveland. Mm -hmm. Jeff Blair had me on his show, and uh, he said, Jerry, I've got an email or two from people saying, you never use these nicknames for Cleveland uh, or Atlanta. Why is that? And uh, I went on the air and I explained why, just like I am to you here. It's the beginning of a lot of people recognizing that is offensive. And Jerry decided not to do that better than 20 years ago, going back to 1993. And I was happy I did because it involved people and the sensitivity to those people that we're not around a lot. But I wanted to bring that to everyone's attention. I love that. I love that you said that. And yeah, you did it quietly. You didn't say, look at me. This is a statement I'm making in the mid nineties. You said that I I sleep better at night knowing I do this. And and we all have our moments like that. Um, I could talk to you all day, uh, but I want to let you go. I want to let you watch the rest of the game uh, as big a baseball nut as you are. But um, I'm going to tell you this and and we haven't had this conversation, but you know how cool it was to grow up in London, Ontario here, you and Tom in Toronto and mostly here the late great Ernie Harwell and the late great Paul Carey in Detroit. So we had the best of both worlds in, in London. And, and I, you know, I got to know Ernie a little bit. I've gotten to know you a little bit and, and I will never forget um, how important uh, a guy like Ernie Harwell a legend. I know you'll say, Oh, I don't belong with Ernie Harwell, but Jerry, I got you right there. And, and you mean as much to me as he did. Thank you so much for, uh, for all that and the time today. Well, I appreciate that. Greg. Thank you very much and enjoy the rest of the season. I appreciate being on with you right here. Jerry Howarth, that was fantastic. Um, we'll uh, we'll air some of that on the Saturday show on the weekend, on Easter weekend. By the way, he has a book. I want to tell you about his book. It's a couple years old now, but get the uh, get the damn audio book. We're, we're going to be driving around aimlessly for the next three months. There's nowhere to go and nothing to do. Just stay in your car, okay? Shelter in place. Uh, except in your car. Hello, friends. Stories from my life in Blue Jays baseball. Get the, I got the book, but I had a friend of mine tell me that they got the audio book. And uh, yeah, you can just play that around the house. You're like, is, did somebody invite Jerry over? No, no, no. It's just the audio book. 